How's the other guy look? It's real funny, James. Didn't you hear my announcement? Yeah. All right, buddy. Hey, thank you for, for what you do. I mean, he already said it, but, like, thank you for your commitment to opening this place up on Tuesdays and stuff. It's awesome. So thank you for doing that. Uh, you guys all have your Bibles. I know you have your Bibles because you're in church. You know, that's, you have your Bibles. Open them to Matthew chapter 18. We're moving right through the book of Matthew. Not, not quickly by any means, but I don't know, kind of quickly. Um, I think we've been making some pretty good time. We've been known to take years to go through a book, so I think we're doing all right so far. Uh, 18, we're going to be picking up in the middle of a narrative that Chad, was it Chad here last week? That Chad started last week. It was Chad, right? Okay. Were you guys here? Okay. Matthew 18, we're going to take today three whole verses, 7, 8, and 9. So uh, we're not going to move that fast today. Jesus says, woe to the world for temptations to sin, which basically gives you our subject. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Isn't that a great text? Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. Good way to punctuate Thanksgiving. Um, My wife, for those of you who don't know, we met at a very young age. Um, She comes from a very godless family, generations of godlessness. Not only that, uh, but, but even people that are kind of like Berkeley intellectuals, all right? So they're almost like the worst kind of atheists that exist. And um, they're extremely confident in their views, and they're extremely judgmental about other people and other worldviews. And um, when my wife was 15, she was taken by a friend to uh, her very first church experience. It was a youth group at this church on the outer Highway 18 where we used to live, Southern California, uh, called Church of the Valley. It's where all the cool kids uh, went to youth group. Uh, they, weren't, they weren't good kids by any means, but that's where the cool kids went. And uh, my wife was invited there. It was her first time sitting in a Bible study in a church building, and this was the text that the dude was preaching on, right? And um, it raised her eyebrows for a couple reasons, and at first I think it just kind of reinforced that which she already thought, which is like, gosh, these Christians are stupid and gullible, like this is ridiculous, cut off your arm if it causes you to sin, and pull out your eye, but at the, at the other, on the other side of it, God actually spoke to her in a way that only God could through a text like this, and she ended up going up and finding the dude afterward. And um, having it out with him, which she was really good at. She's a really, she's a master debater, even still. Um, She'll go, she'll go toe to toe with anybody. And uh, she's a thinker. And, um, and she went up and she, she hounded this guy on this. And uh, this would be an interesting text, wouldn't it? As an introduction to Christianity and what Christians think and Jesus and what Jesus thinks and what Jesus taught as far as what solutions are. You know, this is a solution. Okay, 
And we're going to look at that. But I want to make sure, first of all, I want to recap slightly into verses 1 through 6, which you heard from Chad last week, because our Bibles have breaks, which sometimes are helpful for referencing and finding things that we're looking for, but the original text did not have breaks like this. And so it's really easy for us sometimes to have a break and then be like, oh, this is a different subject. This is a different discourse. This is not. This is the exact same run-on, same discourse as what we had in verses 1 through 6. And that really had to do with a question that was brought up to Jesus by his disciples, who um, is the greatest in the kingdom, right? And then, of course, Jesus answers and says, well, it's basically a child. Unless you become like one of these, like you, you, you're, you know, you're not going to be great at all. Uh, in fact, you may not even, even uh, be there. Right, and then he goes into what'll happen if if somebody stumbles um, or or tempts one of those little ones. He calls it now children. I believe he is literally talking about children, like young children there. Um, and, and, and yet, I believe there's also a, a second core. There's a correlation that that's made um, that that carries over to us as God's children as well. So I think there's two layers of truth in who he's referring to when he says uh, little children or my children. And so today we pick it up with that context as we go into uh, verse 7. Now, before we do that, there, there are a few passages that record Jesus preaching something that truly induces fear. Fear. And uh, this is undoubtedly one of them. Uh, there are many, uh, especially in reform circles, which I would actually call myself, that's kind of a circle that I run in, and I tend to theologically connect with uh, reformed theologians and reformed thinkers, but oddly enough, there's a lot of people in reformed circles who criticize the idea that wanting to escape hell is a valid motive for coming to Jesus, and I very much disagree I very, that sounds spiritual. That sounds really cool. Like, yeah, you know, no, our, our main motive should be that we love Jesus, not that we want to escape hell. I get all that. But I believe that one oftentimes follows the other. The fact that, yell, that hell is used as a reality, a real threat, something to really be feared in our scriptures is real. That's legitimate. In fact, that's how I got saved when I got saved. Um, I was... Um, not to get into my boring story, but I, I was just in a mess of myself and my sin when I found Jesus. And I basically was doing a six-month stretch in San Bernardino, and I was reading this Bible, because that's all I had to do, 22 hours by myself in a cell, by myself a day. And I'm reading this Bible, and I start realizing like how much I had offended God. And I'm reading through the book of Revelation because I remember thinking, like, that's a trippy book. It's at least interesting. All the other ones are boring. And so I went to Revelation to see dragons and weird stuff going on. And, and I saw that, that Christ is coming back for the people on earth that don't know him, um, in a very bad way. Like, there's some bad stuff. There's some things to be feared for people who are on the wrong side of God when God returns. And I knew that I was on the wrong side of God. And that day, like, God did some business with me. Like, I guess you could say I did business with him, but really it was him doing business with me by showing me the terror of that which I had coming right? Like this is something that the Bible actually does. And I feel like this is something that Jesus is kind of doing today. So I, I believe um, there, there, there's a, like this can be a valid primary motivator 
for discovering the goodness and the love of Christ because he's, he's made a way other than what we deserve in hell, right? Which is really what, what we're going to do with this today. So verse 7, first of all, he starts off, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So woe is what? We don't really talk like that anymore, right? We don't look at each other and go like, whoa, to you. You know what I mean? That would be weird. You'd be labeled as weird. Uh, but what it means is, is grief, right? Like, like grief to you, like hardship to you, um, challenge to you, or, or troubled are you, <laughs> right? Like troubled are you due to what? In this case, temptation. Due to temptation existing in the world. Due to it existing, due to it coming to us and continuing to come to us due to temptation persisting and imposing itself on us relentlessly. I don't know about you, I'm exhausted because of the amount of times that I got stuff coming at me that I'm tempted towards, that I know I shouldn't be tempted towards, and sometimes it's just, it's like swinging at the mist, you know, and you just get exhausted but because it's so persistent. It just keeps coming, right? So, so woe to us for that. And then we have uh, for temptations. Anyone know what temptation is? In the Greek, the word is uh, scandalon. And that word sounds like what? Yeah, scandal or scandalous, which happened back in the garden in the beginning. There, like scandal happened, you know, which got us in the predicament that we're in. Right. And so like temptation means like a, a, a stumbling block or a trap stick. Like back in the day, they would have reeds like in the wilderness, you know, and uh, if one of those reeds were bent over, it would be easy as you stepped through that to get your foot caught in it or to trip over it. You know, it was called a trap stick. And that's basically what 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 temptation is. It's a it's a snare. If you were to give temptation a simple, straightforward biblical definition today, it could be basically just said the enticement to sin or to evil. That's it. Just keep it simple. Temptation is the enticement to sin, or to evil. How many of you have temptation? Cool. A couple honest people here. How many of you experience temptation almost daily? How many of you are challenged even still as believers with temptation? Okay, good. We're, we're doing well together. Um, do you agree, would you say, that it's a woe? That it's a hardship? Right? Uh, a grief, a problem. And, and so we would tell people, like, like, welcome to the human race. Like, you know what I mean? Welcome to the work of Adam. This is the whole reason it exists. This is why you and I struggle with it and wrestle with it and fight with it. It's because of that scandal that happened in the garden whenever it was, let's say 6,000 years ago. We can talk about it later. All right. Um, and this even happens, it persists still in Christianity. Just because you come to Christ doesn't mean that, like, everything's fine, Right? Like, just because we become Christians doesn't mean that we, like, skip through a field of flowers. You know what I mean? Like, some people tend to think, like, we have rainbows shooting out our, our ears. You know what I mean? I don't know what kind of thoughts people have about us sometimes, but um, it's not accurate. We, we still have struggles. Forgiven does not mean free of sinful challenge. Okay? Uh, it, it doesn't mean free from spiritual woe. Forgiven means forgiven. Forgiven means forgiven. We may, we may be apt to think that because we've been born again, we don't ever think the way that we used to or desire the things that we used to or be drawn towards that which we used to be drawn to, which is bad or which is evil. But this is not always true. 
right? And, and, and in those old man moments, those sin challenges that we still encounter, we may be tempted to think, am I really saved? Right? Like, like am, I, am I really saved? Am I, have I really been made new? Uh, is, is there something wrong with me? Maybe. That's, that's one that I do often with myself. Like, is there something wrong with me? And the answer is yes. <laughs> that's why Jesus had to come. That's why I need Jesus every single day. It's because there is something wrong with me, right? And, 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 so, and so Jesus says here, like, like, woe to you. Like, woe to the world due to temptation in the world. And, and then he moves to a statement that speaks to the other side of that woe or that grief or that challenge having to do with temptation, which is woe to the person by whom or which the temptation comes, right? So, so this, this takes us from being just tempted to being the tempter, right? So we're like, we're in trouble on both sides of this deal, right? Uh, we're like, we're not just victims of temptation, we're also victimizers, with temptation. So, so this woe is not just an enticement from outside of us um, towards sin or evil, but an enticement from us towards someone else for sin and evil. And this really stinks for us because it places us in the middle of the horrible statement that Jesus just previously made back in verse 6. That's the bummer of this, right? You guys remember what it is? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, tempter, right? It would be better for him to have a great millstone, mafia style, right? Fastened to his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. So again, not only are we grieved due to temptation coming upon us, we're also grieved due to temptation coming from us. Coming from us. Woe to us. Because we are also the ones who have caused others to fall into sin or evil. And you know what? I don't blame God for having such a hate for this. I like, not at all. Um, I had kids. If you have kids, you kind of understand like, that, that this is no joke. right? Um, I remember when they were younger and coming up and, and I would see anyone, I would detect anybody that I got that feeling about that was like up to no good like trying to pull my kids up to that same no good. And like, I had a problem with that. <laughs> like I had a problem with these people. I had a problem with these parents. I had a problem with these kids that were trying to entice my kids into stuff that were dangerous and that were not good for, for my kids. Like I had a serious problem with that. And I, I don't blame God one bit for having a problem with this. However, the real problem with this is that as much as I hate this and understand the ugliness of it, I'm guilty of it. Like, you're guilty of it. We are guilty of it. Every single one of us. We, like, we have done it. And as much as I felt this way towards outsiders with my kids, like, I've done it even with my own kids. Like, I am that guy. There are times I cannot stand to reflect on my parenting years and certain ways that I parented. Like, it, like I'm not even a crier. I'm not even a Brent Maxwell, Okay. And I'm a dude that will sometimes just bawl at a thought, at a reflection of like something that I said to my kids or the way that I said it or something that I led them into um, thinking I was cool and I was showing them something cool. 
you know? Like, like there's so many ways that, I've said this before, like if I could go back and I could like do some stuff over, heartbeat. Like give me a respawn. You know what I mean? Let me, let, let me have a do-over at parenting because I blew it on so many levels in so many ways by being the tempter to bad things with my kids. It's crazy to me. And I have. I've gone to each of my kids separately over the years with tears and said, forgive me. Forgive me for the kind of dad that I was at times and the kind of stuff that came out of me at times. Like, I, I'm so, like, devastated over it. But I, I know I'm this guy, right? And, and so, like, it's, it's easy for me to see how I've caused others or little ones to stumble in my past. And when I do, when I look especially at my kids from a parent standpoint, I think to myself sometimes, like, this is truly the unpardonable sin. <laughs> like, verse 6, like, isn't strong enough. Like, truly, this is bad. I can't be forgiven of this. He did not pay for this one. That's what I'll think to myself. He did not pay for this one. And the reason I think in such ways is because of how strongly it's communicated here that sin, uh, especially this sin, is to God. And I feel it. I get it. And so much... I mean, I can't... I can't honestly, guys, I can't even comprehend that God would ever allow me to escape the consequence of some of my shortcomings in this area. Mostly due to what's said next, verses 8 and 9, uh, which, which says, uh, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, like cut it off, throw it away, it's better for you to enter life. Crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better for you to enter life with one eye than two eyes and be thrown into eternal fire. I tried that this week. I, didn't, I couldn't even succeed. Couldn't even take my, my eye out, you know? Um, if, if, you're one, if you're one of those ones that, that thinks Jesus never said anything offensive or violent or disturbing or alarming, think again. He did a lot. He said tough stuff a lot. Much of what Jesus said, He said to produce, in order to produce, with the intention of producing shock and awe in the listener. You and I should be shocked when we read words like this. We should be in awe when we read words like this. Like, like who could have said, Jesus could have said the things that he said in so many different ways, like a hundred different ways, but like instead he, he chose to say them exactly as they're recorded. That's how he chose to communicate them. Now what's really weird to me is that I walked in here this morning and I didn't see any of you walking around without a limb or an eye. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of bizarre. Like, not one of you. Which tells me that either you guys don't think that you have any sin, or you don't really believe that Jesus meant this. One or the other. Most of us as, as Christians have not resorted to dismemberment after reading this text due to this thing in language called hyperbole. Right? Hyperbole. At, at least we hope, we're counting on this being hyperbole. Right? It's got to be. And one of the characteristics in language that tips us off to interpreting something hyperbolically is the extreme ridiculousness of that which is being said or suggested. That's what makes it hyperbole. Right? In other words, when what's being said and the way that it's being said is so radical and so extreme, we conclude, they didn't really mean that. They can't really mean that. Of course they didn't mean that. You know? 
That's how we respond. And, and, and such is what we do with various things like this one from Jesus. There's no way he could be truly advocating for that which he's saying. Which I tend to agree with unless sin is really that bad before a holy God who watches, who knows. Unless the punishment for sin, hell, is really that bad for the one who may find themselves ending up there. The problem with simply dismissing what Jesus is saying here as ridiculous only, He didn't really mean it, is that we may be tempted then to just play down and dismiss the seriousness of that which Jesus wants us to hear loud and clear. That being that sin is far worse than you and I think it is. It's far worse than you and I think it is. And the wages of that sin are far more brutal than we often think it will be. You want me to say it again? I want us to feel this. Sin is far worse, Jesus is saying here, than we think it is. And the wages of sin are far more brutal than we think it will be. This is being communicated here. So let me sum up my interpretation of this this way. Yes, this is hyperbole. And yes, Jesus really means it. Again, we can talk later. It's both. Yes, the literality would be radical and it would be ridiculous. And yet, yes, Jesus is dead serious. Because sin is that bad and hell is that bad. Okay? Sin earns us eternal fire, or he says here, the hell of fire, right? Uh, neither sound like good options. I don't, I don't like the way either of them uh, are, are spoken. Which, by the way, for anyone who struggles with this, um, and it is getting more and more popular the more that we um, deconstruct our faith, the more that Christians deconstruct and rediscover their faith, which really just means we're going to start removing things that we're not comfortable with. This is becoming more popular in the church today. That hell is a myth. It's not something that a loving, holy God, good God, would actually ever make or produce as a reality for anybody. So it must all be hyperbole whenever we see it. I want you to know that Jesus spoke all the time about a real, eternal, literal, conscious place for those on the wrong side of God called hell. He does it again right here. Like Jesus wants us to know that he believes hell is real. Like you have to actually call him a liar or just straight disagree with Jesus if you want to maintain that hell is not a real thing. It is real and it's eternal and it's really hot. Like it's not, it's not, it's not made for pleasantries, right? And uh, Jesus talks about it again here. Now, if Jesus was telling the truth here about which is better, right? I'm going to have to agree with him that dismemberment's better, like all day long. Like if I know what I know about hell, and which you can see, in fact, uh, there's a huge section where Jesus actually gives us, like tells us what hell is according to him. And you've got the uh, Lazarus and you've got the rich man. And it's not a parable. A lot of people try to make it a parable. Like this is like a real story that's going on with this rich man. And, they're, and they're, at the conclusion the rich man comes to at the end, once he's there, it's like, you, you got to go back and tell my family. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you, you got to go warn these people that I love, that this is, this is legit. Like, don't come here, right? 
It's, it, it's, it's that real. And if it's that real, and our, our other option is to start cutting limbs off and eliminating parts of our body, I'll take that one. Like, I'll take that one all day long, right? And I'm pretty sure that, like, these are the options for everybody that exists on earth because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Like, no one gets away on this deal. Like, we have all, we have all fallen short of even this thing that we're talking about in our text today, tempting others and even giving into temptation by others. So we're guilty. I'm guilty. You're guilty. Guilty. Right here, right now in this room. All day long. Now let's be honest for a minute. How many of you read your Gospels, the words of Jesus, like He loves me, He loves me not? Like you're picking a flower. Remember that little thing when you were a kid and you'd start picking the petals off a flower? Like He loves me, He loves me not? Some of you read your Gospels that way. Some of us read our Bibles that way. And it can get us into a lot of trouble if we do. We need to be really careful with this. Um, uh, in, in one statement, and this is the reason why we do it, in one statement we can have Jesus saying something like, come to me all you who are weary and weighed down, and I will give you rest. Right? This Gospel statement, like finished, forgiven. Like, come to me. Right? And then in the next statement we hear something like this. Right? Where it's like your only option option to overcome sin is to start cutting stuff off. You know what I mean? And and if we're not careful, we won't know how those things work. Like, which is it? Right? Um, Like, is he for me or is he against me? Because when I read the text that we're in today, I feel condemned. I I feel like I've got this other thing that, that needs to be taken care of because I'm guilty of it. Right? Um, he has forgiven my, my sin deficit. Um, uh, has he forgiven my sin deficit? Or, or am I still going to owe on some kind of debt that's pending, right? Depending on what I've done. It's almost like an insurance policy, the way that we view the gospel sometimes. You know what I mean? Like you get the bare minimum coverage or you get the full meal deal. You know what I mean? And uh, the bare minimum's like, okay, these, these sins have been paid for over here, and so like if I fall into this, or I've committed this, or I end up stumbling in this, like my insurance pays for that one. Like gospel's good on that one, right? But um, uh, a lot of us don't think we have full coverage because we read other sections and we're like, oh my gosh, I've done this and this is horrible and I just don't see how I can be forgiven for such a thing. And this is kind of what we're talking, it's almost like an insurance policy, right? It's easy for us to read Jesus in a way that makes it sound like the gospel is conditional upon whether we do or do not do certain things, like what he says here. And we must remember while reading through the various discourses of Jesus that Jesus is weaving, weaving both problem and solution, law and gospel, throughout his discourses. If we do not discern the difference, we will come away with a bipolar God. We will come away with a bipolar theology of God. Right? We will come away with even a bipolar gospel. The lack of discernment, this lack of discernment has, has met, uh, led a lot of people astray in their Christian beliefs, in their understanding of what gospel is and isn't. So, for instance, the previous words, which he says here, leading a child astray will get you a millstone around your neck. Um, I did that. We've already established that. I did that. I feel like I'm, I'm guilty of this. I know I did as a parent. But praise God that once I get to chapter 27, I find that he nailed it to a cross. Right? This is what we're talking about. The ability to discern the weaving 
of condemnation. He is trying to kill everybody that he comes across. He's trying to show us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So he's speaking heavy stuff that condemns all of us, right? And then he gets to the redemptive work on a cross that says, I took it. I took it. I took it. So then that becomes an option rather than just hacking off parts of our body, which, praise God for that. You know what I mean? That's a good thing. Bottom line, if we're not taking the full picture into consideration of what Jesus would end up doing, right, on the cross to remedy that sin, which is so grievous and great, then we can and we will walk away with a view that he didn't die for this and he didn't die for that, so we are undoubtedly disqualified from his forgiveness. Jesus actually is still showing, teaching, proclaiming a bleak reality of their current circumstance, of our current circumstance, apart from the gospel, which will drive them to the gospel. That's the whole point. The killing of the law is what drives you and I to the cross of Christ. Otherwise, the cross of Christ doesn't matter that much. It ain't that great of a solution or an option unless we know that we are screwed otherwise. Sorry, I don't mean to say it that way. It just needed to be said that way. All right? We're in trouble otherwise. So listen, know that the gospel does not say, the gospel does not say, he loves me, he loves me not. The law does. The law does. The gospel says he loves me. Period. Every day. Even in my darkest moment. Even my worst moment. He loves me all the time. Okay, is there any practical application that can actually be extracted from this for the Christian under the gospel of Christ? Yeah, I I think there is. Uh, um, There's a principle that's spoken of here that I think can be applied to our lives and benefited from for us as Christians today. And that is this. Radical sin requires taking radical measures in our lives to eradicate it. We'll go with the hyperbolic application. All right? Extreme sin requires extreme measures in order to conquer it. This is true. First and foremost, if we have some listen, if we have something in our lives that's overwhelming us, we must go to someone who can overwhelm it. Amen. If we have something that is killing us, that has the upper hand, that is bigger and stronger and better than us, we need to go to someone who has the upper hand and bigger, better, stronger than that. We cannot do it ourselves. The battle is too big. It's above our pay grade. We will lose every time. Right? We need to go to God. If we have something or someone in our life that's bullying us, we must find its bully. And that is God. And I mean it in the best way possible. God is Satan's bully. Right? God must be sought first and foremost if we are overwhelmed in our lives with sin and temptation. We don't play around with it. We don't mess with superficial avenues. We don't look for secret doors and try to clean ourselves up. Right? We, we come clean with Him. This is where it starts. We come clean with God. We confess openly to Him. Not for His sake but for yours, right? He already knows what's up. Long before you decided to repent, he knows where you've been and what you've been up to, right? It's not for his sake. 
He knows what's going on. It's for years, right? Treat sin. We have to treat sin like we treat cancer. Cut it off. You find out you have it in your life, we need to cut it off. We need to be willing to do whatever it takes to to get rid of that thing so that it cannot spread regardless of what kind of extreme treatment it may require. So tear down the wall. The first thing we must do is tear down the wall that our sin has put up between us and God because that's exactly what sin does do. It builds a wall, right? A lot of people say, like, I feel like God is, is distant, you know, like, he, like he's moved away from me. No, your wall of sin has made him feel distant. He's, always, he's right where he always is. It's you that's moved. It's you that's hiding behind something. Those obstacles need to be torn down. They need to be cut off. And we do that by first admitting and acknowledging that um, we have sin and that it is wrong in order to have a chance at shutting the door on it. No matter the cost, no matter the loss, no matter the shame. This is actually Counseling 101. If you guys, just just a bonus. Like, I'm not a psychologist or anything like that, but we do a lot of counseling, and we do a lot of heavy counseling. And it is biblical counseling, but all counseling, guys, comes down to this. What's the problem? What's the solution? Are you willing to do it? All counseling. All counseling comes down to those three things, those three questions. What's the problem? What's the solution? Are you willing to do it? Right? The same thing with you and I and anything that is holding us down or competing for us and our hearts in our relationship with God. Um, There's some extreme examples I've seen over the years of people um, eradicating sin in their lives. I remember seeing a tattoo once uh, that was on the thigh right here, not facing that way, but facing this way so that that person could read it every single time he saw it. And it said, God's, God's. Because he had a problem with looking at things that he shouldn't be looking at. And I think that's a little extreme. I'm not saying that you should go get a tattoo and that that's going to make everything okay. But, like, that's kind of extreme when you think about it. And this dude's trying to get rid of this problem. That was a little bit extreme. Uh, I've seen people straight up move. Drop everything and straight move. Like, pull a geographic. (laughs) Like, just go somewhere else because they could no longer stay around the old people, places, and things. Now, the problem is that no matter where we go, there we are, right? I think we all know that. We're, we're ultimately the problem, but there are times when something is so bad, and we know that we're just not going to get the upper hand the way that that, that that system is set up on that platform in that place there, that you just got to go. And I've seen people straight up go. I've seen people actually go into um, uh, uh, places back east, like Amish places, where, where you don't even no longer surround yourself with the things that you and I and normal Americans surround ourselves with other day. Like, that's pretty extreme. That's kind of hardcore. I've seen people walk away from their cell phones. How do you live in this world without a cell phone? You know what? You can. You actually can. People have proven it. Is it extreme? It's extreme. It's super extreme, but people can do it. If some people can't help themselves, that's an extreme... That's something that they have decided to cut off in attempts to get victory over that which they need to cut off. You know what I'm saying? I've seen people even go back to the old school phones. I actually kind of wish I still had my old school phone. The little I called it a baked potato. It was like a little round boxy looking thing that flipped open. And uh, I just thought it was, it was indestructible. You could, just, you could just pitch it up against the brick wall and that thing was fine, which is why I got it was because I was, all right, never mind. Um, <clears throat> 
I wish I had it sometimes. I've seen people, I've seen people get rid of their computers. They're just like, I'm done. Again, we live in a world where it's like, really, you can do that? Yeah, you can do that. Like, if you need to, you can just live without a computer. Like, you have permission. That's a radical measure so that you're cutting off something that's radically harming you, right? You can do it. Like, it, the list goes on and on and on. The point is, be willing to do whatever needs to be done because sin is that serious and hell is that real, right? Radical sin requires taking radical measures, all the while never forgetting that the cross, Christian, Christian, is your motivator, not hell. So now I'm going to go backwards with where I started. If you belong to God, if you are Christ's, if you are a new creation, born again, saved by grace through faith, and you struggle, that is normal. But do not forget that the cross is your motivator for your struggle, not hell. You're no longer um, on the fast tracks there. That is no longer your destination. Christ has saved you from that. He has done away with that, right? For those who are in Christ, Romans 8, right? There is now no condemnation. There is now no condemnation. So you may feel it, rightly so. You may feel the guilt. You may feel the shame. You may feel the embarrassment of your failure. But Jesus saw it all and felt it all more when he hung on that cross with you in mind. He knew, right? Is there going to be temptation for us as believers still? Yes. Is there still sin? Yes. Is there hell? No. 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 When you and I wake up after this place is done, we breathe our last breath, we see Him. And we don't see an angry Him. We see a Him that's ready to see us. Hallelujah. Praise God. The reason is because Jesus beat it once for all for all who believe in His righteousness on their behalf. That's what the gospel is, right? Um, this rad. This is so stupid. But I saw, I saw it last night when I was laying in bed and couldn't sleep. It's like one of those stupid little things that people make. It's a, it's a receipt, right? It's like a receipt that you would have at a restaurant or a grocery store when you check out. It says at the top, Jesus paid it all, you know? And then it's got the list of, like, checkout items, you know? And it's like sin, you know, paid, you know, shame, paid, pain, paid, past mistakes, paid, rejection, paid, loneliness, paid, slavery to sin, paid, spiritual death, paid. And you get down and it's like amount due, zero, right? Change, zero. Subtotal, zero. Grand total, zero. You know what I mean? And it's so dumb and it's, it's so true. Like, it's like, thank you. Like, thank you, Lord. Like, at the very bottom of the receipt, instead of like, thanks for coming, you know, it's like, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans 6.23. The bottom line for us who are in Christ, when we read this section of Scripture, not as condemnation, but as a possibility for new and better things for us right? That's what we read here. Jesus was cut off. Jesus was cut off so that we would not be, right? He was dismembered so that we would not be. He was punished so that we would not be. Gospel, gospel, gospel. 
So now I can say, Happy Thanksgiving. We can also come to the table, right? Because that's exactly what this represents at the table, is the reality of hell gone because of his blood and his body on our behalf. And all who believe that by faith are welcome to this table to receive it by faith. This is not something you do for him. This is something that reminds you of what he's done for you. Lord, thank you for this day, for this text, and for the cross, which kills any accusation the enemy might throw at us each day. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for your body, which secures us in you eternally. Amen.